podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Patrick Schick rubber stamps himself for a Puskas award at Hamden. Spain miserably failed to huff and puff to blow the Swedish house down. Some might call him Levin Golski, but last night in St. Petersburg he was vacant Dowski. Um, I'm Jake from What If Football. This is the Euro Daily Podcast, episode 9. What a night of football we had. We are on ACAST, Spotify, Apple and Amazon Music. If you are on those podcast platforms, please give us a like, a subscribe. A five-star review would be would be very lovely very generous of you if you could do that also if you are feeling extra extra especially generous sign up to our patreon page um patreon page is where this podcast will go out as well patreon.com forward slash what if football for a small monthly contribution of three pounds you can get seven days a week content after the euros that being a contemporary football podcast historical football podcast as well head to head and we've got great games we'll be covering great games from the time immemorial and also football manager content as well check keep your eyes on that after the euros but today we're going to stick with the uh, the european championships and they get stuck in to today's show so let's start where the day's action started then at hamden park the 2pm kickoff between scotland and the czech republic scotland's very first tournament football game for 23 years since the defeat to morocco in 1998 in france Scotland played a 3-5-1-1 kind of with uh, Ryan Christie getting the nod over the likes of Che Adams and uh, other midfielders in slightly in behind Lyndon Dykes, the QPR forward there. And the big news coming out of the the, uh, the team sheet wasn't that though. It was uh, Kieran Tierney missing out with Grant Hanley, Liam Cooper and Jack Henry in a defensive three. I think that defensive three is strong enough. Obviously, you'd prefer to have Kieran Tierney because you have then that, that added dimension on the left-hand side, don't you, interchangeable. And obviously, Kieran Tierney is one of the uh, better Scotland footballers that they've produced over the past uh, generation or so. The midfield three, I thought, was very strong. It's a definite Premier League quality midfield three. Scott McTominay of Manchester United, John McGinn, arguably their most important player outside um, Andy Robertson, really, of, of Aston Villa, of course. And Stuart Armstrong of Southampton, one of the underrated, one of the underrated Premier League players of the past season, really. Scotland hadn't scored in a European Championship opener before today. They lost 1-0 to Germany in 1992, got a 0-0 against the Netherlands in 1996. And obviously that run continued yesterday. We've got McTominay, the midfield. The McTominay was sort of, it was straying away from his box-to-box role that he has at Manchester United. He was more in the uh, number six deeper role with uh, Armstrong and McGinn, a bit further forward, two eights there. Obviously, Lyndon Dykes was a target man and... Ryan Christie was more of a th- more of a ten, but he'd be free roaming really, um, in behind, and I thought he looked pretty pretty tricky. Linked things quite well, created space for Robertson. He'd often find himself on the left hand side more than uh, more often than not. Um, created good chances for Robertson. He created the chance where Robertson uh, he could have gone for the far push and he should have driven it low and hard. I've seen him do that a couple of times for Liverpool, but perhaps in two minds went for the uh, near post. Got neither really in his uh, shot. Order. I think it was about half half an hour through the match um, was tipped over the bar it was probably Scotland's best chance of the uh, probably the game really of the first half definitely and um, Lyndon Dykes was 
he was quite lively in the first half. He had a, a good chance early on. Uh, just whistled past the post, though. But again, that was from interplay down the left-hand side. We've got Armstrong in there as well, Robertson. Obviously, Ryan Christie's there creating triangles. And Lyndon Dykes up front, the man up front. And to be fair, Scotland played very, very well um, in this first sort of half an hour, that first 45 minutes. They, they created chances pretty much sustainably all the way through, sustained rather, all the way through the uh, through the game, really. The three at the back centrally looked pretty assured, really. I thought they were quite calm under pressure. Jack Hendry uh, was, was fantastic, I thought, apart from the uh, obvious... Um, not mistake slight um, because he was a bit of luck involved for the Czech Republic but decision making let's say could have easily just uh, broke it out to the right hand side and that's probably where the potentially the only weak link for for Scotland was with uh, Stephen O'Donnell on that right hand side he was lined up in a one on one battle with Jakub Jankto of uh, Czech Republic and Sampdoria who was uh, very threatening probably the biggest threat outside Patrick Schick I don't think he was mobile enough going forward um, I don't think Scotland were too mobile. They were, they were, they, obviously, they're going to dominate down that left-hand side because that's where the glut of their most important, strongest players are, obviously, Armstrong. Ryan Christie would feed in. He could feed into the right if the right was strong as well, admittedly. Uh, but it's obviously, all the play runs through Andy Robertson. And if Kieran Tierney were there, it would probably be even more dominant towards that side. In the second half, Che Adams came on to make it more of a two up front. And I think um, instantly Scotland were better for it. He instantly found pockets of room in the first few minutes of the second half and um, linked it up well. And he was creating chances for himself rather than for others, really. And it allowed Scotland to get further up the pitch. They had a lot more touches in the final third. A Robertson cross bounced out to Jack Hendry. And of course, his curled shot achingly hit the bar. And that was obviously the closest Scotland would, would come. Uh, another teasing ball from the left saw um, Vlasic. He had to claw out an own goal too, and it was so close. And Lind- if it had, if it had just missed it and not got enough of a paw on it, Lyndon Dykes was there to uh, net what would have been at that time an equaliser. And you've got Armstrong. I think he was better at breaking the lines and getting forward in the second half, almost playing that Ryan Christie role in that second half. And um, he was agonisingly close as well to getting a goal back. You got Lyndon Dykes. He was saved from point blank range from a, a flick on there and I think Scotland played very very well they were very unlucky to not come away with anything let's be honest and in the end the it came down to two things it was a a second phase sort of transition in defending a set piece which had them you know they play the man-to-man marking thing at, at set pieces and O'Donnell were slightly slightly uh, too slow to come out to the uh, to the cross there after they'd isolated uh, John McGinn but um, and it obviously goes without saying the piece of quality for the second goal, which was just absolutely insane. It was opportunistic. It was the goal from the furthest distance in European Championship history, quite possibly one of the best European Championship goals ever. I'd probably only have Davosuka and Marco van Basten ahead of it. Maybe Shakiri's overhead kick. That's quite, quite slept on because it's quite recent, isn't it? Um, but um, it's definitely, definitely up there. And uh, as I said, Jack Hendry probably shouldn't have attempted the shot. That and it, it was kind of unfortunate the way it broke out because it broke out like a through ball to Patrick Schick, and it, the two-on-two counter attack was there. He looked as the ball was on the move. David Marshall was he was too far out of his net, but you can tell you can see why he was out of his net because if it came if it came closer to him, then the uh, 
sort of like a counter press kind of a, but they would have regained possession higher up the pitch and been able to keep that initiative on the uh, attacking third on the uh, edge of the checks box. But take absolutely, absolutely nothing away from the finish. I've put it in the title here. It's a Puskas goal winner. It is a Puskas goal winner. It, it hands down unless something absolutely dramatic happens now. Um, potentially in a bigger game, more important game maybe. Um, but it will be the goal of the tournament. But the, these are the goals that any team can concede, really. It's slight disorganisation from set piece and something that just, well, <laughs> you've got to hold your hands up sometimes, haven't you? And I, it was just one of those goals that you just see once every year or two and it's just like, yeah, you hold your hands up and just accept that because I, I don't think the Scotland did just, I don't think it did justice at all to the work that Scotland did. Um, the only thing that I would take is um, they just need to be more ruthless in front of goal. That's the only qualm I have. Um, probably not be as dominant from the left-hand side, but I can see why they did that when you compare to compare the wing-backs on the left and the right, obviously. And I think James Forrest, when he came on to play right wing-back, I think he gave Scotland a, a much more attacking impetus. Maybe could be an option, maybe if they're looking to counter-attack, maybe against England, possibly against Croatia as well when they get back to Hamden. I I just think that will even things out a little bit. I think they were a bit too over-reliant on there. I think Che Adams was fantastic when he came on as well. Um, but Ryan Christie by no means wasn't wasn't a bad performer on the day. I just think uh, it was just an attempt to reshuffle. And Clark did attempt to reshuffle it in many ways, keeping the 3-5-2 shape. Though he had McTominay going into defence, he had Ryan Fraser further forward in midfield, John McGinn dropping deep as well. I was kind of uh, disappointed with John McGinn in terms of you just want when he's in a Scotland shirt you just think of him as this all action midfielder and I think today it was rather Armstrong and Christie would kind of fit that mould rather than McGinn and McGinn was on the right hand side so I can see why maybe if he was on the left it would have been completely different um, because of that over-reliance on the left but I can see why um, McGinn wasn't as much in the game as he might have been obviously the next game is England at Wembley on Friday night and everyone will be up for that and I think Leaving Hamden takes a little bit of the pressure off. Obviously, there'll be a huge Scottish contingent at Wembley, as there often are. Um, I think it was 1967 when they brought the goals down. Uh, they obviously won't get to that point, I don't think. It'd be something if it did. Um, but uh, it's, it's not all hope lost for me. Uh, Croatia, I haven't seen them. Obviously, they were playing England um, away. They'll be playing Scotland away. It's, completely different games but I, I do think Scotland have a chance to still qualify against Croatia and, and against England to be fair as well there'll be a high pressure game for England more so than Scotland so maybe they'll come back hopefully Tierney will come back for that one because you want to see the best players play in the uh, in the big game and I think for me that's the biggest game outside of Group F in the uh, group stages for me anyway so for the Czech Republic you had uh, Thomas Callas uh, the centre-back partner for Chaluska. You've got Maso Pust on the right of the uh, 4-2-3-1 on the uh, right, whilst uh, obviously Jakub Jankta I thought was very good on the left-hand side. Thomas Socek, of course, in the middle, and a little graphic came up on the BBC that covered the most ground in the Premier League, and I was shocked to see that it wasn't a Leeds player. 461 kilometres. Outstanding. I think he was like 30 kilometres more than any other player, and he still looked in peak condition here. Um, he was a bit more forward than uh, Alex Kral. Alex Kral was more like a half-back dropping in between the two centre-backs there. Uh, Czech Republic, up until this point, since the dissolution of Czechoslovakia, only won two of their 
six European Championship openers, and those were against Switzerland and Latvia. So Scotland in good company there, aren't they? Yeah. I thought Switzerland, uh, Switzerland. Uh, I thought Czech Republic looked slightly steady once the uh, frenetic opening. It was always going to be a frenetic opening, wasn't it? Yeah, international football at Hamden, uh, even ten thousand people there, it was still going to be frenetic. And that was the ten minutes, and they were look, they looked fairly steady. They gave up a few chances, yeah, but they looked uh, fairly steady. Um, Yankto, I thought, got the better of O'Donnell all day. Provided Patrick Schick for a good chance, uh, which uh, produced decent low save off David Marshall as well, and they were constantly finding each other. Uh, for half chances early on. Um, in the second half, obviously, Patrick Schick scored a absolute sublime header uh, from that Vladimir Kufal cross. And I said yesterday, didn't I? Watch out for Vladimir Kufal's crosses because they are sublime. This one was inch perfect. And obviously, Patrick Schick's jump at, just at the right time, just glances it enough and it lands just in that bottom post there. And it was... It was one of the best headers that we'll see at the tournament um, by quite some distance, really. Um, yeah, I thought Kufal was excellent. I thought Schick was obviously man of the match, um, especially in his Czech shirt as well. Uh, I liked Adam Slozek when uh, he came on. He looked quite exciting, obviously football manager, God. <laughs> and, uh, and he came down on that left-hand side as well. And that left-hand half space, similar to Scotland, really, was the danger zone for, for Scotland, for Czech Republic. They were obviously going to utilise set pieces, kind of where the first goal came from as well. And they had the the uh, the height advantage. Obviously, Thomas Sochek, we all know his dangers from set pieces. They showed a showreel of his goals, and they were all of them headers, back post, front post. He can do it all. Um, it's just fantastic. Obviously, that's where the first goal from, albeit not from uh, Sochek, but from Patrick Schick. And um, in terms of Scotland. I think they can take solace from this performance. Obviously, it's 2-0. It's disappointing. This was the, on paper, the easiest fixture that they're going to have in the group. But if you look at the XG, I know people don't like XG, some people. 2.31 Scotland had. So that infers a, an incredibly disappointing lack of quality in the final third in terms of finishing. Che Adams, I think, will start um, because they will need that two against England. I think they'll need a two going forward and they can't possibly underperform the XG anymore surely that's the most they'll get in the tournament I doubt they'll get 2.31 across the rest of the games combined meanwhile obviously Czech Republic's was not 0.91 obviously the halfway line goal is going to be a low chance I think that's the some with a problem with XG sometimes that was a 2% chance I think it was of going in but when you take into account the goalkeeper position I, as soon as it as soon as it hits it and it looks as a yeah it's on its way it's 100% in isn't it it's, it's never not going in and obviously, Twitter was awash with uh, pictures of David Marshall getting caught in the net, which was unfortunate, but he did his best to keep it out. And the tension of the net was absolutely ruined when he uh, careered through it. Uh, bless him. But I think I, I thought David Marshall had an all right game, to be fair. He kept out a couple of good chances. But Scotland push on. They will play England on Friday night in the, the pick of the group stage games. Meanwhile, Czech Republic and Croatia in very different positions going into their clash on Friday late afternoon at Hamden, where Czech Republic will return. And that'll be quite a tasty fixture as well, because if Czech Republic get anything from that game, they're qualified, almost certainly qualified there, whilst Croatia will need the, the onus, like it's on England now against Scotland, it's definitely on Croatia, because they, they won't want to go to Hamden in the final game and have to get something, especially a win, a big win, maybe, to get a third place... Um, qualification under the belts which uh, 
wouldn't have been on the agenda before the uh, before the tournament started for Zlatko Dalic, but there we are. After this short break, we've got another 2021 trivial teaser and it's the usual suspects again who have got it right. Welcome back. Four of you, the same four of you, got it right again. Of course, the answer was Martin Brathwaite. Who else has played with Lionel Messi and Paddy McNair? <laughs> well, sir, well done too. FT Law Podcast, again, great podcast. George Spencer, Jake Collinson, Pazza, SAFC. Well done to all of you. They wrote in to me on Twitter at whatif underscore YouTube to tell me the correct answer and congratulations again. Today, we have a central midfielder. He has been managed by Ryan Giggs and has been managed by Andrea Perlo. Some of his teammates have been Cristiano Ronaldo, Alexander Kleb, Cesc Fabregas, Wojciech Szczesny and Ryan Giggs again. And again, a central midfielder, this is going to be too easy, isn't it? A central midfielder is managed, been managed by Ryan Giggs and Andrea Perlo. He's played underneath, he's played alongside Ryan Giggs, Cristiano Ronaldo, Alexander Kleb, Cesc Fabregas and Wojciech Szczesny. So if you think you know the answer, tweet me at whatif underscore YouTube. We will have the answer for you on tomorrow's show. After this short break, we're going to preview the big Group F fixtures that are happening today. Also taking a look back on Spain versus Sweden and Poland versus Slovakia after Group E got well underway last night. Welcome back. We are here to cover Group E. So Spain versus Sweden. The ground at the Sevilla Olympic Stadium was ready at the 11th hour, transferred from Bilbao to Seville after, obviously, uh, cases were very different. COVID cases were very different in the Basque country to the rest of Spain. And the decision was made late on in the day, but they still managed to get the uh, the European Championships paraphernalia around the outskirts of the stadium, inside the stadium, which begs the question why they couldn't reprint it and just say Euro 2021. But that is a UEFA decision. And as we all know, UEFA don't make bad decisions, do they? Of course not. Facilities in place had to be done in double quick time and well done to all the ground staff who managed to get that out of the way. The uh, pitch wasn't well watered though, which uh, wasn't conducive to Spain's style of play, but we'll get on on that in uh, just one minute. Obviously, um, in the build-up, there's concerns about player well-being in terms of the Seville summer because the temperatures are going to be 30, 35, 40 all throughout the day. Spain have got a five o'clock kickoff, which will be six local time. And that that's just going to be almost intolerable to play. In. And as a result, um, Jana Andersson, the Sweden manager, made an extended session in the ground. And you've got to say that it worked. Uh, Swedish lads were heroes on the day defensively. They ran the socks off. They were absolutely superb in defending that goal. Obviously, it's nil-nil. The first goal was drawing 31 games at the European Championships and almost five years to the day. And it was, of course, that humdinger between England and Slovakia, that Group B curtain closer, which was probably quite possibly one of the worst games of football I've ever seen live. So Spain, I, me and my friends watching the England game, we draw sweepstakes teams and one of mine was Espana. And I'm slightly less optimistic after this, even more uh, pessimistic after this match. Unai Simon got the goalkeeping nod as expected over David De Gea and uh, Robert Sanchez. 
uh, despite late calls that late whisperings that Robert Sanchez might actually start. Um, Laporte and Pau Torres was a centre-back partnership, so no all-Manchester City partnership in there with uh, Eric Garcia, no two left-footers at centre-half. No Thiago, which was um, kind of surprising, but in his place, Pedri. And, of course, Sergio Busquets wasn't involved after the uh, COVID fiasco, and that has, certainly has to have a part to play in terms of sweet, in terms of Spain's performance. Obviously, they performed quite well, they just couldn't find the net, but obviously the... Preparation has taken some hit by that uh, COVID uh, outbreak situation. They're having to train a lot differently to Sweden. Sweden would have been able to train. Obviously, they've had problems of their own with Dejan Kulazewski, um, who obviously couldn't start today. And that has to hamper it slightly. Um, also hampering it slightly is the treatment by the fans in the warm-up friendlies to Alvaro Morata, who uh, didn't get the best ovation, um, the fans in the pre-tournament friendly chanted that he was bad which is um, about as vitriolic as it gets in Spain at least with uh, non-Real Madrid and Barcelona players. Uh, Morata was selected though despite the uh, discontent over him um, over informed Gerard Moreno whilst uh, the wingers that I suggested in my team preview video were selected Danny Olmo on the left of RB Leipzig and Fran Torres who I don't think he had a great game. I almost probably outshone him a little bit, but uh, Fran Torres, I thought, um, was a correct selection. Uh, a lot of a lot of people, including Danny Murphy, kept beating the the drum for Adama Traore. But I just don't see. I don't. I don't see why he, he's gone. I don't see the scenario how he'll play in either of the any of the group games because he's a player that you need when there's a counter attack. He probably fit he doesn't fit Spain's style at all and you see here there was numerous graphics that came up for the amount of passes that Spain had the possession was like 85% at one point and I just don't think Adama Traore is sort of suited to that it's sort of player like Thiago is who uh, Danny Murphy again questioned on commentary last night um, why he was coming on because he couldn't create goals and he couldn't score goals which is just yeah, um, and after listening to Emma Hayes on ITV, that was quite the come down on uh, co-commentary from Emma Hayes to Danny Murphy, I must say. Anyway, my views aside, it was a 4-3-3, but in terms of the shape, Pedri was so high, it was pretty much a 4-2-3 one. I thought Pedri was absolutely fantastic for Spain, um, obviously relatively, because they couldn't find the net, he couldn't really pick those locks, but I thought, thought for an 18-year-old in his first tournament match, I thought it was fantastic. He did drift off to the left because... Jordi Alba was so aggressively high. It was unbelievable. He's so high and he kept up that energy all game. Um, he's getting in crosses. Obviously, um, the captain in absence of Busquets um, not playing. And uh, Danny Olmo, I thought was great. He had a couple of good chances. Perhaps should have put one away, but you could say that for quite a lot of the Spanish team. And in terms of European Championship openers, the only time that um, Spain have dropped points so to speak in uh, the 21st century at least was a 1-1 draw against Italy in 2012 and the other one was against another Nordic team in 2000 when they lost 1-0 to Norway and I think it was Stefan Everson who got the goal on that day this time they wouldn't score as well against another Nordic team the only time they that Spain hadn't scored in the uh, European Championship Open of course they also didn't score against Switzerland which begins with SW in the 2020 World Cup and they won that one so there's a little omen that Spanish fans can get behind, obviously. Clutching massively at straws here for my sweepstakes team. Anyway, 
Sweden were that narrow in their defensive block that Spain's best chances early on had to come from crossing. Obviously, you had the Danny Olmo header, which was kept out pretty decently by Robin Olsen. Olsen, who had an absolute stormer against Spain in qualification, and he was up to his usual tricks against Spain here. Um, Jordi Alba was He's, him playing so high was causing Sweden massive problems. Created Spain's first chance, which was a nice fade from Koke. Koke again getting fairly when it was realised that Sweden were just going to sit four four two, fairly narrow, fairly very very deep. Koke would join the attack alongside Pedri, uh, leave Rodri alongside uh, two centre backs to uh, mop it up a little bit at the back. Should uh, any Sweden pressure come back and a counter, which was very very rare. Uh, but yeah, Koke faded it just past the post, and obviously the. The big, the big chance that everyone's discussing. Alvaro Morata dropped in a little bit of a, a little bit of a lob, lobbed through ball and through on goal, one on one, curled shot. Thierry Henry one nil, but no, it goes the other side of the post and Spain still draw the contest. And Morata was dropping very deep, in relatively anyway. He was dropping deep, allowing these inside forwards to drift in at times. Uh, fullbacks definitely providing width. Obviously, you've got Marcus Lorente on the right-hand side. And um, his crossing, I thought, was a little bit off. Albers was fantastic. I thought Albers was very, very good. Um, and Koki was playing this sort of break in the lines to arrive late in the box. He had another good chance half an hour through the game. Then uh, these chances were just building and building and building. It was uh, They said at the half-time in the BBC studio, it was only a matter of time before it came. And that's exactly what it felt like. It just felt like eventually that Spain just would just would uh, pick that lock and they would find the net eventually. And that's probably why Spain came out a little bit lethargic for the for the second half. They all the chances of the first half that they created, the second half, nothing, absolutely nothing. Uh, there was one dragged Murata shot, um, and then Luis Enrique. You know, changed things up a little bit. Pablo Sarabia came on mid. Sweden think a little bit more, provided something a little bit different out wide. But Spain really, really threatened. And then through the uh, PA system, you've got the stoppage time announcement. And then Spain suddenly realised that it wasn't like 30 minutes to go. And then it was like the chances were back. It was bang, 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 air of desperation about it against what was by then probably a flagging Sweden side. Um, Gerard Moreno would come on. Uh, there was uh, cheers for him coming on, which uh, again from Spain fans are voicing um, their opinions about Morata's selection. And Moreno had a point blank header. It was either side of the goalie it's in, isn't it? Let's be honest. Um, but again, fantastic save off Olsen. Uh, reactionary save. That's dead on 90 minutes. And two minutes later, he <laughs> had a curling shot that just went over as well, Moreno. So it, it proved more dangerous and more incisive in his little cameo that Morata did for the majority of the time that he was on the pitch. And um, Sarabia couldn't capitalise on another tantalising Alba crossing stoppage time. And the three chances of the second half all came after the 90 minutes that I thought were, were troubling Sweden somewhat. But credit goes to Sweden. He had, uh, they lined up in a 4-4-2 as was expected. Danielson partnered the Lindelof. Danielson plays in the Chinese league. He's I think he's the wrong side of 30, but he had an absolute fantastic game alongside uh, the Man United uh, midfielder there. Christopher Olsen, he partnered Albin Ekdal in the midfield. I thought they were both great. Olsen had a fantastic game. And uh, we had Forsberg on the left, who's pressing a little bit. And this is where Sweden allowed Spain a little bit, a little bit um, more space and more territory, more chances they perhaps should have done because you had a half-assed press. You had... Forsberg he'd press and then Isaac 
and um, Marcus Berg up front would take turns alternating how to press and very little, obviously Sebastian Larsson on the right, he's 36, he's not going to be able to press, especially in this heat for 90 minutes, so he sort of dropped, up, dropped back and sort of did what the rest of them should have done, because if you're going to press, all of you press, if you're not going to press, just two banks of four, Berg maybe drop off and then Isaac can uh, run the channels and sort of prompt Spain into beginning their attacks and um, Isak was you know fantastic completely laudable here he's the first player 21 or under to score 17 goals in La Liga since Sergio Aguero in the 2008-9 season he's obviously banging form had a fantastic season for Real Sociedad and sometimes he would drop deeper in the forward too sometimes both would sometimes Berg would uh, go out and chase things and for me Sweden in terms of the brief slivers of time that they got the ball, they were very uncomposed. They wasn't, they weren't press resistant in the slightest. Every time they got it, they gave it away instantly. Um, they were always losing it in the defensive third or the middle third, which made things incredibly hard for themselves. And but as the first half wore on, obviously the second half as well, the more glimpses they got, Isaac got a sniff. He, he showed his composure. He, the little touches that he could can do in short space of time with loads of people around him. He shouldn't that in the first half and the second half. Obviously, the first half, he, he, he was his shot was going wide. Yeah, I'll admit, cannoned off Marcus Lorente, hit the post gratefully into Unai Simon's arms, which is very unlucky from a Swedish point of view. But if you're Spain there, you're thinking finally a little bit of luck because if that had gone in that would have been so unlucky for Spain dominating the game and then that was the first chance Sweden got I don't think they had a shot on target in the entire game might be wrong with that one um, because that was off target but that was the closest they got by some distance and um, Isaac was probably the only one that showed a little bit of composure in a Swedish shirt and again in the second half he shows the same sort of trickery beats three Spanish players in the box with close control they're all sort of around him it's like that picture of Maradona against Belgium in 82 or 86 be 86 were um and he fires it across fires like a sort of low angled shot across uh, to Marcus Berg on the near on the far post and he just spoons it over and I thought oh that was the, that was the chance and I think their pressing in terms of the second half was a touch more intelligent possibly out of fatigue so he didn't press too much but it is definitely out of necessity. I think a four four two not pressing. I was probably the perfect example, perfect um, application against this Spain team. Maybe pack out the midfield a bit more with uh, in a four five one, but that would have left Isaac quite isolated. Although, if you did play four five one, dropping Berg deeper or hauling him off, uh, Forsberg could easily, you know, break that that midfield line to uh, join Isaac on the uh, counter attack. And I thought Spain did very, very well. They obviously opened up Euro 2016 with a draw in very different circumstances against Ireland, 1-1 there. But in terms of European Championships openers, it's only been that game and today, uh, last night, obviously, and a 2-0 win against Greece in 2008, where Sweden began without a, without a loss. They obviously lost against Belgium in 2000. They beat Bulgaria, sorry, in 2004 as well, lost to Ukraine and the last time that they qualified from a European Championship group was after that 5-0 win over Bulgaria in 2004. A team that don't look like they're going to qualify, Poland, which we'll cover now. Mateusz Klik, Linetti and Krzysztof was in the midfield. It was sort of like a 4-4-2 expanding into a 3-4-2 because of the flexibility of 
Bartosz Berezinski and Kamil Joswiak on the right-hand side. Berezinski could tuck into a right centre-back role. He could, could, could play right-back in a four, even a Joswiak could play right-wing-back as well. In terms of European Championship openers, Poland haven't had the best of it, really. They've only won once um, in the 21st century. That was Northern Ireland at uh, last time round. I thought Piotr Zielinski was fe- very central and fairly central. Uh, he began the game linking up well with Lewandowski, but... For the majority, Lewandowski was very, very, so vacant, you could scarcely believe that he was playing, really. And I prefer Zielinski out wide. Joswiak was doing what I would want Zielinski to do, really, playing high and wide in possession in the 4-4-2. Uh, Berezinski would sort of be behind him, but very defensive. But when uh, when it was out of possession, he took in, Joswiak would come back. And I thought he provided good width um, for Poland, Joswiak on the right, as did uh, Pekarik for Slovakia on their right, to be fair. And I thought a lot, too many Polish players were largely ineffective. Alternatively, Slovakian, when they got forward, you could tell that uh, they were far, far more effective. So Poland provided enough shots on goal, but they were all speculative. None of them truly troubled Slovakia. They were restricted to chances outside the box. They could not break them down. And that was the story of the first half, really. Uh, the second half happened, and obviously 30 seconds into it, everything that you thought was over. Magic Rabus finally got forward on the left, which he struggled to do, really, in the first half. And he cuts the ball back for Carol Lanetti, breaking into the box late on, sweeping the equaliser in, and an adept finish. And he continuously was arriving late into the box again and again and again. And in the second half, Poland found much more joy from wider positions in the second half. And the game was sort of like that. Most of the opportunities came from crosses out wide, came from set pieces. Um, Jan Bedrek also almost got a second equaliser at the death from a cross. Um, Swiderski was uh, reverted to Polish desperation from the first half, um, being speculative in stoppage time, really. So it's kind of acceptable. But his, his long drive went wildly over the bar. But the day was Slovakia's, and Slovakia lined up in in a four-two-three-one. You've got Hubochan, uh, the experienced Hubochan partner in uh, Milan Skriniar. Uh, we had a bit of a problem in the team preview, decided deciphering who would partner Skriniar. But it was Hubochan who has the uh, tournament experience as well. Kuchka, Haraslin, Robert Mack were all behind Andre Duda, so it was there's no truly out and out striker. But with Duda in that false nine position, I thought he was absolutely exceptional. Probably the man of the match for me. He drifted into the channels well. Um, he got his first chance. He just caught it at the near post, hit the side net, and caught the same way that Raheem Sterling uh, had that chance in 2014 against Italy. And if you checked my YouTube out, I've got a what if on that. I thought it went in anyway. The Raheem Sterling one and this one. And some of the fans did as well on the far side. But there we go. It is Slovakia's first opening day winning a tournament after drawing to New Zealand in the 2010 World Cup and losing to Wales, of course, in the year of 2016. They will go through on both occasions though and it looks as though they're well on the way to uh, qualify again so that's a 100% record which Slovakia go under the radar don't they? they certainly went under my radar I've got them on fourth in my predictions for every single one which is obviously not likely to happen now Andre Duda linked up well in the left half space with Robert Mack I thought he was a mag- magician especially for the first goal wriggling his way out of uh, Joswiak and Berezinski's uh, sort of half-hearted uh, challenges really he finds the goal via a deflection via the post and off the back of Wojciech Szczesny's head. So that's the kind of look that Alexander Izak wanted in the uh, the game after this. But there we are, Poland. We're through. Uh, Poland were 1-0 down and Szczesny 
He uh, scores the very first own goal by a goalkeeper in European Championships history. And it, not to blame Chesney, but the defending was shocking as well. The two players on one and Mac just jumps through it and quite so easily. It was unreal. On the uh, right-hand side, you had Harassling dancing through the opposite wing as well. And I thought Slovakia were perfect. They sat deep, a four-pronged attack. So it was, you had, pretty much had a bank of six and a bank of four. And Mike Hamshik would uh, join him from deep as well. I think they looked very assured, surprisingly, surprisingly assured, really. They played very, very patient on the counter-attack. That's probably what impressed me most, really. Duda and Mack in that left channel were fantastic. And the game changed, didn't it? Uh, Gregor's Krachowiak was sent off for two bookings. The second one slightly harsh, maybe. I uh, did step on his uh, foot, didn't he? Uh, obviously, the first one was a break breakaway, and he stops that, which is definitely a yellow card. And, of course, the game boiled down to crossing and set pieces, and... The winner was found from a set piece and Milan Skriniar with a finish that uh, Robert Lewandowski would have been proud of and envious of really in this game particularly. And Skriniar finished it, the Inter Milan defender, with an absolutely peach of a half volley there into the bottom corner. And it was a game of these wide deliveries of these set pieces which suited Slovakia down to the ground. They've got a propensity to score from them. Poland have a propensity to concede from them and it was the perfect... Uh, Perfect cocktail for Tarkovic's side, and Tarkovic, you've got to give him tons of credit since he's uh, come to the uh, come come into the job, got them through against Northern Ireland in a tricky game uh, in the playoff, and now stunned Poland in the opening game. He shifted kind of from a five-three-two to a four-four-two hybrid, sort of th- sort of flexible when it was uh, eleven versus ten to meet that uh, lack of numbers for Poland. And I thought her 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 was uh, great in midfield, sorry for any Slovakian listeners. Um, I thought he was great alongside Marek Hamšík. did a little bit of the dirty work there and he ran himself into the ground. Just fantastic uh, game, um, fantastic performance and it was a great end to a, a thrilling game, a thrilling second half at least, um, from a game that I described as not the most fashionable yesterday but definitely the second half was something to behold and one of the uh, sleeper hits that will... Uh, forget about once the tournament's over but it was a great it was a great game so let's go to quite possibly the hardest group ever drawn together obviously you have 1982 West Germany Spain and England that was a three-team group that does not count um, 1980 had some pretty difficult groups in it as well um, in terms of the European Championships but this is this is something else three of the four favorite three of the big six a lot of people are saying now Luis Enrique said six teams can win it, three of them are in this group. So France versus Germany, two teams of football in royalty, two very different states of mind both are operating in. France have evolved and bolstered their lineup since the World Cup win, notably, of course, Karim Benzema. However, there are little ructions in the camp. Mbappe has come out to quash Olivier Giroud's criticism of his uh, Giroud was in the press criticising his teammates and Mbappe said that affected him. So here we are again. Is this 2010? Are France contributing to their own downfall? Will there be a mutiny? Will there be a player revolt? Will there be a a banishing of a player? And as I said, they, they've done it before uh, when they looked like they were one of the favourites. France are the favourites. There's no getting around that. They've got the best squad. But... <laughs> they, they always, if no one else can beat them, they just beat themselves. And uh, 
that's probably it looks like the only feasible way that they're going to get knocked out of this tournament doesn't it really um on the other hand germany are sort of in the inertia of their own tactical instability really another of my sweepstick teams which looks good on paper it would look fantastic in 2014 wouldn't it or 2010 uh but not now um germany they're in, so i don't know if yogi love knows what his team is or if he's trying to smash a load of tactical systems in at the last minute so they're flexible like uber flexible but it just leads to indecision and a lack of uh, just a load of confusion really will they play a 4-3-3 or will they play a 4-2-3-1 now Thomas Muller's back in the fold or will they continue with three at the back now for me obviously it's not the style that they usually play but three at the back for me it suits Germany it allows Robin Gerson's on the left to flourish you can shoehorn Joshua Kimmich in uh, at right wing back so you can allow Tony Kroos in a midfield three with uh, Muller, Gundian or Goretzka as well. Three makes sense as well because RB Leipzig play it. You've got Marcel Halstenberg, Lucas Klosterman. They play. They can both play wing-backs, they can both play centre-back and Germany have a lot more talent at centre-back than they do in full-back. Obviously, we go to Philipp Lahm quite often for this. Obviously, nothing's really been the same. They won the World Cup with Benedict Howardes and one of the full-back roles, for example. So that shows the, the lack of full-back production you've got and why Joshua Kimmich is... Uh, usually preferred at right back um, and I think him playing at right wing back works because he's higher up the pitch it does allow another midfielder to get in there in that three and it's just all about who starts up front and it's going to be probably one of two of Sani and Gnabry, Havertz and Werner of course Kevin Volland is also in the team but those are the four main ones that you'd expect and Jogilov's send-off should have absolved them of pressure and they're at home in this fixture as well they're play all their games in Munich in the group stages but it just seems to be getting worse and worse as the uh, obviously the fixtures in the build-up hasn't helped the 6-0 in Spain the 2-1 defeat at home to North Macedonia in the World Cup qualifiers it's not helped at all has it um, this is the biggest match in the group stages it goes without saying it could have been a final easily been a final it was the semi-finals last time round and um, pretty much the same as any any of the other games from Group F, which contain Portugal, France, and Germany. No offence, Hungary, but that's just that's just how it is. Germany have never lost an opener in the uh, European Championships. Not lost an opener, and France's only opening loss was in the very first game of the European Championships in 1960, a 5-4 humdinger against Yugoslavia. We'd love a 5-4 here, wouldn't we? But let's be honest, it's going to be it's going to be tight, or it could be. France steamroll in Germany or maybe Germany soccer's anything can happen that's the beauty of it that's why we're watching that's why we're all in anticipation for eight o'clock tonight and the other game let's not forget was Hungary against Portugal this this is probably the most perfect start to a tournament in terms of the other the other games in the group no disrespect to Hungary but you'd, you'd want to play Hungary first you beat Hungary Portugal got Great momentum going into the second and third games. But of course, we have to remember Euro 2016, Portugal 3, Hungary 3. A draw which uh, scraped Portugal through in the last group game of Group F. Um, But Portugal are far, far stronger from 2016. Obviously, they still don't have João Cancelo. He's uh, been replaced by Diogo Dallo after contracting COVID, unfortunately. But we still got Cristiano Ronaldo up front and he's one of the deadliest strikers going. Diogo Jota, he's... uh, in great form, he might start. You've got João Felix, who's uh, also new to the squad in terms of from 2016. 
but you've got the mainstays of Bernardo Silva in even better form than 2016. Renato Sanchez has done a full lap of uh, the uh, the form race, and he's uh, come back into contention there with his uh, with his performances at Lille. You know, he's always had a bad time of it at Bayern Munich, at Swansea, etc. But he's now back into the fold. Pepe's come off a good season with Porto, obviously making the uh, Champions League quarter final there. Portugal, one of the out of the big teams that can win it, Portugal are probably the uh, least revered. Maybe Spain as well. Uh, Germany, you know, the, it's France, Italy, and England who are probably and Belgium maybe. And then you've got Portugal. I don't, nobody's expecting them to do anything. When if you think about it, they've probably got the best team, one of the best teams outside of France, really. Um, in terms of Hungary. Obviously, Dominic Soboslai, he'll be keenly missed. But you have got Roland Shalai up front who can create something out of nothing. And that's what Hungary will need, um, especially on the counter-attack. He likes to drift into the channels. Uh, it will be good on the counter. And that will probably be where Hungary Hungary get something out of this game if they are to. Atilia Slazai at the back, he will be uh, keenly scouted at this tournament, I believe. He's uh, quite a youngish centre-back for Fenerbahce. And I think he will... Uh, Maybe provide some problems for Cristiano Ronaldo, but let's see how it goes. It's going to be a fantastic game. Portugal haven't won a European Championships opener since 2008 when they beat Turkey 2-0, of course, since lost to Germany and drawn to Iceland. Meanwhile, Hungary's only European Championship opener in the 21st century, both 21st century, uh, Austria 2-0. They won that one in 2016. Obviously, both paired together in 2016. Hungary topped that group. Portugal finished third. Is that going to happen this time? No, probably not. Um, join us tomorrow where we'll be discussing those games. We'll, of course, be looking forward to the uh, the second round of group fixtures and we'll be uh, giving our predictions for the second round of uh, fixtures. Who's going to go through? Who's not going to go through? Um, you can catch that on ACAS, Spotify, Apple and Amazon as usual. Uh, Lovely five-star review would be very, very generous of you, as would a Patreon donation, a small monthly donation of £3 to get seven days a week, 50 weeks a year content after the European Championships. This podcast also goes out on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whatifootball. And until next time, until tomorrow, silly, up the three lions. Podcast Network.